is an Odyssey original. This is KDX in Death. I'm Rob Arch. I'm Charles Feldman. Can you see it? The finish line? There it is. Coming up, the race for L.A. mayor ends next Tuesday. Voting has already started, of course. Karen Bass, Rick Caruso, making their last-minute pitches to those who have yet to cast their ballots. But is there anyone left who just hasn't made up their mind at this point? We'll go in-depth into what might be a very close contest. And those managing that contest and other elections across the country, they're getting nervous about the potential for conflict and maybe even violence at the polls. We discuss what's being done to protect them. And the U.S. Supreme Court deciding whether colleges and universities can factor in race when deciding which students are admitted. More missile attacks in Ukraine. We go in-depth into what Russia is targeting now. Anger and frustration over crowd control efforts are building following a huge stampede in Seoul that killed dozens of people in uh, South Korea. Twitter thinking of new ways to make money. It could require a subscription of sorts from some people. And the government trying to explain UFOs to Congress in a new report it has an idea of what's behind many of the sightings. But we start with the L.A. mayor's race and if it's coming down to the wire. Sarah Sidwani is a professor of politics at Pomona College. Thanks for being back with us. Uh, I'm always struck by almost any contest where it's been going on for months and months and you get to, you know, a few days before the end of an election process, which is what this is nowadays. And there are people who still haven't decided what is it that they're waiting for? Yeah, thanks for having me again. And and I think such an important question. I mean, recent polling that came out certainly showed that Caruso and Bass were now in a neck and neck race, but that there was still almost 25% of people that, that responded to the poll that were either undecided or simply would not answer the question. So there's definitely some folks out there who are hemming and hawing over their decisions. And, you know, anecdotally, I've gone out and talked with voters in different neighborhoods across LA. Um, and people are questioning, especially given all of the, the turbulence in City Hall right now, um, what is their best choice? Choice. Uh, and certainly, you know, sometimes we hear the, the response, well, Karen Bass is, has a long, uh, history as a coalition builder and she could lead us through this time period now. At the same time, we, I think we hear a lot from folks, lifelong Democrats who are also saying, you know, the city has has had this corrupt leadership for quite some time. Um, perhaps Karen Bass is, is associated with it. Certainly she's talked about knowing many of the people in City Hall for a long time. Um, you know, is it time for a change? Okay, but that but that but that's precisely my, my point. So that person that you're just talking about, or persons who they're vacillating between, well, on the one hand, this person has experience, and on the other hand, that person is an outsider. What is it in the next seven days that's going to make them go, ding, that's the person I'm going to actually vote for now? Yeah, I think that's always the challenge, right? Um, at, at some point, you have to, there's a deadline, so you have to make up your mind or stay home. And that is certainly something neither candidate probably wants at this point, right? We need as, as great of participation in this election as possible. Um, so it's hard to know what, what will push people over the edge one way or another. Maybe it's one final uh, report that comes out, one final drip of information that's leaked. Certainly, um, there's a lot of people questioning uh, where, their, uh, where their allegiance lies. You know, um, in, in the primary stage, 
uh, many Latino voters, for example, went to Ben de Leon. Um, he's, of course, not in the race anymore as, as mayor, and, and certainly um, we've heard a lot of headlines about him recently. But I think a big question is, where do those voters turn? Um, how has this recent scandal influenced them? I don't think enough people are asking that question. Um, meanwhile, Rick Caruso has done an enormous amount of outreach and knocking on doors in Latino communities um, uh, you know, throughout not only East LA and Boyle Heights, but also the Valley, uh, the San Fernando Valley and many of the neighborhoods there with, with large numbers of Latinos. So will they come out to vote? And who will they support? I think these are important questions. And, you know, you can't discount the fact that a lot of people just like to put things off. It's not that they, you know, they can't tell you which way they're going to decide or or what new information uh, they're going to look at. They're not even thinking about it. Some people just put it off and yeah. don't think about it until it's like, oh, my gosh, uh, Election Day is tomorrow. I guess I better make a decision. How often does that happen uh, when you look at these contests that come down to the wire and come down so close and with so many people still undecided? Right. I, I think that this is a changing dynamic. Um, certainly, everyone now is uh, has received their ballots in the mail. Vote centers are open, so people have the opportunity to vote. But the latest figures show that only 8% of the ballots that were mailed out uh, to residents of the city of Los Angeles have been returned. So we're not looking at a very high participation rate as of today, um, but of course, folks still have another week. So we can anticipate um, that we'll have a huge surge over the next week, certainly on Election Day, as well as more ballots being mailed in. So we will not know the outcome of this election on election night probably be at least a week or two uh, later. You know, I'm curious. I, I don't know if there's uh, ever been a study like it done. Maybe you do. But as more and more people vote earlier and earlier, I am kind of wondering whether people vote for somebody, say, two, three weeks before the actual end of election day voting. And then because of things that happen, they think, oh, you know, I probably should have voted for the other person. Yeah, certainly if another scandal comes out, I think people are going to be feeling <laughs> that way. Uh, you know, the, the, the early voting um, is a relatively new phenomenon that we've had here in California um, where ballots are being mailed out to everyone. So I'm not aware of such a study, um, but I think you're absolutely right that this is what needs to be looked at. Certainly the calculus of voters, as political scientists like to, to refer to it, might shift over the course of the several weeks that people have their ballots. Um, maybe it's that last mailer that you get that, that just, you know, is the deciding factor. We're seeing, for example, the star power that has come out over the last several days in the mayor's race. You know, certainly over the weekend, we saw Karen Bass receiving the endorsement of Barack Obama. Caruso was out in Latino neighborhoods with Kate Delcio, a telenovela star, um, which, which I think people were really excited about. You know, those kinds of things could potentially shift, uh, shift people's, people's uh, calculus of voting. Um, so I think it's a great study and maybe maybe one that I'll have to work on. All right. Thank you so much. Cyrus Sadwani, uh, professor of politics at Pomona College. I think what's going to make people's minds up, the UFO report yes. to Congress. That's what's going to do it. People Who are do look the at UFO that. people want? Yeah, that's what's going to end up doing it. Coming up, Russia launches missiles in Ukraine to target key infrastructure. And Twitter might soon charge people if they want a certain status on the site. No, everybody wants status. We, some of us didn't live for it, yeah, and if we don't get it, we, we wither away and die. Yeah, so now the question is, do we want to pay for that status? 
Right now, though, with the elections and voting ending next Tuesday, poll workers in California and all across the country, really, they are bracing for potential conflict and the specter, unfortunately, of violence. Now, this comes, of course, after the 2020 election conspiracies that fueled mistrust of workers and polling locations. So with us now is uh, Neil Kelly. He's the former Orange County Registrar, who, who's now with the Committee for Safe and Secure Elections. Neil, thanks so much for joining us today. First, uh, concern is being raised about the safety of election workers. So my question is, how is this impacting election workers you know, here in California? I think it is having an effect. I think that it's becoming harder for registrar voters to recruit uh, poll workers to work in polling places. There was a recent poll that was released by Brennan uh, Center for Justice that says three in five election officials feel uh, unsafe uh, over 2020 and four in five are having trouble recruiting poll workers. And just give us a sense of what exactly does a poll worker do? Yeah, great question. So a poll worker is, in many cases, a volunteer. In some cases, they're paid, but they're the ones that are in the in-person voting locations when a voter goes to vote. So they might check in a voter, they may assist a voter with a voting booth, or uh, they may assist a voter with scanning a ballot uh, when they're leaving the polling place. Now, there's a difference between a poll worker, right, and a poll Mm -hmm. watcher, because we're hearing a lot now about poll watchers. What's a poll watcher? Correct. So a poll watcher uh, depends on what state you're in, but but most states are similar in that a poll watcher can come in and observe the process of ballot counting or the in-person voting process. So these are individuals that either volunteer their time or maybe paid by an organization to watch over what election officials and poll workers are doing. And these threats, where are these threats coming from? Is this coming from uh, those uh, more on the uh, far right because uh, they're spreading the conspiracy theories that the uh, presidential election in 2020 was stolen? Is that where most of this is coming from? That that certainly seems to be the case. Uh, You know, my concern, and I saw this when I was the chief election official in Orange County, is a lot of these individuals that get their information from YouTube University Uh, are really not well informed and they're spreading information that is perpetuated on the internet and in many cases it's just fabrication or misinformation and that's causing uh, a lot of voters who may be on the fence to be concerned about their elections and I just want to be there to reassure them that there's so much that goes into a secure election Uh, we could talk about that for hours. Is the main concern that poll workers have is it poll watchers? Are they concerned that these other people are going to come and interfere? Yes, and, and I think that's the big problem here. And I, I just want to be really clear in that I have always advocated for transparent elections. I think the observation process is very important. It's critical that we allow people to observe elections and to watch the process. What happens, though, and when it becomes a problem is when they cross the line and they may be interfering with the process or they may be making attempts to stop the process of voting. That becomes not only against the law, but it becomes a real challenge to our democracy. And uh, could poll watchers, uh, uh, some of them self-appointed, like we see in Arizona where they're watching uh, drop boxes and they're armed uh, apparently to the teeth, uh, that's an intimidation factor. Uh, Is there... uh, there, there are laws against that in California, are there not? Can someone just show up at a, at a polling place or a drop box and arm to the teeth and kind of try to intimidate people from voting? 
No, they can't do that. I, I, and that's very clear in that that would cross the line into intimidation. You know, we saw in Arizona, the courts recently um, stood by the protesters and saying that the, the individuals who were uh, monitoring the drop boxes weren't causing interference or weren't crossing that line into intimidation. In many cases, this is a gray area. But I just want to be clear that, especially in California and many other locations, if you are going to come in armed to the teeth, like you describe, or if you're going to be doing things that would cause a voter to feel intimidated, that's definitely crossing the line. And, and that's going to be something that's going to be dealt with. So if you have a situation where poll workers are nervous because they're concerned about poll watchers who might be disruptive, does that translate into needing to have more what? More security at, at, at polling places? And if so, doesn't it eventually become too crowded for actual voters? Yeah, that's great. That's a great point. And I think one of the things that we're not doing is advocating for armed responses to polling places. That's that's definitely one thing that we don't want. I think election officials and law enforcement working ahead of election day to have plans in place to respond if necessary is important. But having extra security just on standby is not something that we're advocating. And in fact, in California, it's against the law for law enforcement just to be hanging around a vote center or polling place unless they're there on official duty. Uh, thank you very much. Neil Kelly, former Orange County Registrar, now with the Committee for Safe and Secure Elections. And coming up, questions are being asked about the lack of crowd control following a stampede in South Korea that killed dozens of people. And Congress is getting a report today from the government on UFOs. Right now, the Supreme Court will decide soon on affirmative action at public and private universities. It heard arguments today that challenge affirmative action policies, both Harvard and the University of North Carolina. Jason Whitehead is a political science professor, Cal State Long Beach, who studies legal and judicial politics and constitutional law. Thank you so much for joining us. So given the makeup of the court right now, should we just assume that affirmative action is going to go down? Well, I don't know about assume. I mean, they've had a lot of controversy, especially in the aftermath of overturning Roe versus Wade. It's possible that you could get a couple of moderate justices on the Supreme Court who are so concerned about the court's legitimacy that they might pull back and and have a more limited ruling in this case. That said, uh, I was looking at some uh, comments apparently made this morning uh, that have now been reported from the more conservative-leaning justices on the court, and and their questioning would seem to indicate that they were leaning, if not having already decided, at least in their own minds, that affirmative action uh, shouldn't continue. Yeah, I think, you know, if you're betting on this, I think you're going to bet that uh, the conservative majority, at least five of them, if not six, are going to are going to vote in that direction. They've they've been on record a number of times, especially Chief Justice Roberts in one of the decisions a couple of years ago involving um, uh, K through 12 schools. He said, you know, the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is just to stop discriminating. And so I think you've got the most moderate conservative on the court, Justice Roberts, uh, who really doesn't like race-based policies at all. And you're seeing some of that reflected in the questioning today. 
And of course, the arguments originally for the need for affirmative action was that you know we had hundreds of years of uh, discrimination against people of of certain ethnicities and races, and so that's why we needed the policy. Is the court, if the court rules that way, if it rules that affirmative action is going away, is the court saying that hey, uh, America, we've solved all our racial discrimination uh, problems? What further thing could people who want to fight against discrimination do? I don't think the court is likely to to say it in those terms, but I do think that there is a kind of consensus among many conservatives that it's that we're done. We should be done with this issue by now. And it does raise this question of of what else we can do. I think for higher education, one of the things that has been successful in some states is to target geographic regions where there has been racial segregation in housing and education over the years. Uh, for example, taking you know the top ten percent of different uh, high school classes into elite universities is going to get you some amount of racial diversity, but it's probably not going to be the same as it has been under some of these affirmative action policies. I mean, we know from when Prop Two Hundred Nine passed in nineteen ninety six in California that African Americans and Hispanics, especially, um, their enrollment went down dramatically over the course of the next five or ten years. Um, so I think you've got to get more creative about looking for ways, looking for proxies um, for uh, for race in various uh, measures like geographic measures, also looking through communities uh, of color to see what characteristics there are that you can take into account that would not be specifically race-based. But even those are going to be challenged. And so we're going into a new era of um a really kind of more critical, a more critical look at race, any kind of race in admissions. Well, you know, going back to some of the comments I read this morning from some of the, again, conservative-leaning justices, they seem to be troubled by a lack of metrics uh, uh, because the question kept coming up, well, when do we know if we continue affirmative action? How do we know when we've completed the mission, so to speak? Uh, Mm -hmm. Is that a fair question? Well, based on there's a couple of factors that the court's taken into account in the past. One of them is remedying past discrimination, and the other one is achieving a critical mass of uh, diversity, which the court has indicated in past cases is a compelling interest that states can pursue. So based on those factors, it makes sense that the court would ask questions about the timing, because if you're talking about a critical mass, you're talking about something that's going to come together at some point. And the question is then, you know, when do we know it comes together? As far as remedying past discrimination, however, that's a much harder thing to quantify in terms of a time period. You know, when are we finished with regard to, uh, you know, the the effects of past discrimination with regard to segregation have affected housing, have affected family wealth that's been passed down through generations, has affected people's perceptions of, you know, certain characteristics of different races, so that's a harder one to quantify, and I think the court's re- really leaning in on a couple of um, pieces of dicta from prior cases that do indicate there should be a stopping period. But it's fair to push back on that and say, you know, there's this is an ongoing issue in our society. All right. Thanks so much, Jason Whitehead, political science professor, Cal State Long Beach, studies legal and judicial politics and constitutional law. 
Welcome back to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Russia has gone on the attack again in Ukraine, this time launched a barrage of missiles that hit critical infrastructure in Kiev and other major cities. The attacks knocked out water and power supplies. Yeah, the mayor of Kiev says about 80 percent of consumers in the city were left without water supplies earlier. In the middle of all this, we find journalist Phil Littner, who is in Kiev. Phil, thanks for being back with us. So is most of the water turned back on? What's the situation like there now? Yeah, the water is back on predominantly throughout the city. It was only really out for a, a relatively short period of time, but it's it's still a, a shocking wake-up call that, um, you know, as we go into winter, um, provisions are going to have to be made uh, because this is now part of life in living in Kiev, and um, we can expect uh, as Russia continues to take losses on the battlefield, as the foreign minister here in Kiev said, uh, that they will uh, retaliate by attacking civilian infrastructure. Uh, so Kievans are, are are bracing themselves for what looks to be a very difficult winter. You know, so far, according to most reports, morale has been remaining very high among citizens of Ukraine, uh, a desire to fight back, to not give in. Uh, do you think if Russia continues doing this, will that change? No, I, I don't. I think, uh, I think uh, it'll actually be counterproductive. It'll result in the exact opposite of what presumably the Russians are trying to do. Um, the Ukrainians are uh, angry. They are um, resilient. Uh, they, I've spoken to many of uh, them today, uh, friends and colleagues and people just out and about in town, and it is a, a widespread held belief that um, you know you suffer through one winter, um, you suffer under the potential attack of Russian missiles, uh, and they're very thankful for the air defenses, but you suffer through that for a limited period of time. If you lose to the Russians, uh, the consensus here is you live the rest of your life under the thumb of Moscow, and that's unacceptable. I can remember, Phil, when we first started to talk with you on the show, uh, what was it, almost nine months ago after the invasion, mm-hmm. uh, we were mm-hmm. trying to all figure out how long could this conflict in this war go on? So let me re-ask that question now, nine months just about into it. Any better sense of how long this could go on? Well, I, you know, I'm talking to people on the front lines, and I'm talking to people who are coming off the front lines, and I'm talking to analysts, and I'm talking to the people here in Ukraine. And the the there's a widespread feeling that, um, we are most likely closer to the end of the war than the beginning, with a little bit of wiggle room and obviously the understanding that war is a very fickle mistress and things can change quickly. But the the uh, clearly the um, the um, the wind is at the back of the Ukrainians. The, 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 they are dictating the terms on the ground here. Uh, we saw the attack over the weekend in Sevastopol against the Russian Navy. We're seeing uh, Kherson, a, a strategically almost vital uh, location in the south of the country, preparing for a battle uh, that the Ukrainians are optimistic that they will win. But battles also are you know, subject to the winds of, of, uh, of uh, fortune and fancy. So, uh, But the, the feeling here is that they are, they are going to win this war. And... Um, uh, they are going to continue to take territory, uh, and the, the Russians uh, do not have 
uh, a position where they can regain the um, the momentum. Uh, so it's generally felt here that the winter is going to be tough. Fall is going to be tough. Summer, however, uh, and the resumption of, of fighting conditions, uh, there are many here who believe that they will be able to conquer, reconquer, regain uh, the territory that they lost not only since February 24th of this year, but potentially all the territory that they lost since 2014. But, of course, the Russians are going to have a say in that as well. Okay, so you say that uh, there's a feeling that uh, perhaps we're closer to the end of this war than the beginning. Uh, What would the end look like? Is there concern among Ukrainians that as they, let's say they win, let's say they beat Russia back, that Russia and Putin will respond by going scorched earth? Yeah, I mean, they're obviously aware of that, but then I I fall back on what I also previously said there with the, the, the concept that is widely held in Ukraine of we either win this war, we either fight and win this war, or we will be colonized again, and they are not willing to accept that. So the, there, there's a widespread feeling that they will definitely be able to take uh, the east of the country. Uh, they're thinking that uh, Donbass will be, uh, will be regained under Kiev's control. The big sticking point is going to be Crimea, I think, and the naval base at Sebastopol in particular, uh, for, for Russia to lose uh, a, a naval base that houses a full quarter of their entire naval strength um, would be a shattering blow uh, to the Russian Federation. Uh, it would most likely uh, make things very difficult and questionable in Moscow. Uh, and, of course, we all know that Putin, uh, Putin's future is tied to the future of this war. So there may very well come a time when it is scorched earth uh, and that the Russians respond with that kind of tactic, whether it's something non-conventional. Uh, and by, we've talked about nuclear uh, arms in the past, um, but, you know, whether or, or a more aggressive bombing campaign, um, the Ukrainians are determined to um, keep fighting and they the surrender is not an option uh, for the Ukrainians because it really is an existential threat to their survival and their and their self-determination and their independence as a country. And that's what's on stake. That's what's at stake here. Uh, and they know it very well because they know the Russians as well as anybody. All right. Thank you so much. Journalist Phil Littner in Kiev watching the war in Ukraine. A horrific scene developed on Saturday night in Seoul, South Korea, when a Halloween stampede killed more than 150 people, hurt 130 at least others. Questions being raised about crowd control and why there weren't enough police and security. Seoul police signed only 137 officers to manage the crowd. Anticipated a number over 100,000. With us now is Dan Maxwell, a retired police officer and lecturer at uh, criminal justice at the University of New Haven. Thank you so much for joining us. So what went wrong here? As I understand that they've had this uh, celebration in that area many, many times and everything has gone great before. What happened this time? Well, it looks like there's a there was a lot of things going on at the same time. There was the Halloween crowd, which was a normal thing. Um, a uh, nearby hotel was letting out an event at the same time. People were coming out of the subway at the same time. Um, so I don't know if those three things converging, you know, were, were the main driver of this. Um, but w- what apparently happened was, you know, there was no place for people to go and a lot of them wound up going down this alley, which was a downhill trajectory, and people started to fall down, and then they panicked, 
and then you know we we've read about the rest of what happened we're also joined now in our discussion by uh paul wertheimer uh who is a crowd control expert who runs crowd safe so uh paul i guess it's always easy to a monday morning quarterback but is there anything that you can think of or things that you can think of that they could have should have done differently uh, sure, and I'll, ba- I'll base uh, my uh, observations on being in crowds for more than three decades. Uh, crowds similar to this in crowd crushes and 18 years in mosh pits. <clears throat> so I know a little something about actually what goes on in crowds and uh, how you can make them safer. But it appears to me at this time, that there was a failure to man to plan for this effectively and to manage the crowd. That there was kind of these events usually are safe, so just we'll we'll leave the the crowd to its own uh, uh, ability to manage itself. Now, everyone knew this was li- more likely than not going to be a bigger event than usual because the pandemic had shut it down, and this is the first time that this Halloween festival or the festivities were allowed to occur. So pretty much young people were getting out of what I call pandemic prison, finally. And we've known in the industry or in crowd safety from the beginning that this was going to be a rough ride this year because people have been locked up. Young people want to get back to their lives. So what I'm saying is there should have been special precautions there should have been crowd managers. There should have been an effort to control densities uh, where choke points could occur, people constantly monitoring the crowd. Uh, the event should not, which I believe appears to have been the case, over-promoted. Uh, and if it was, then there should have been the resources behind it, police, fire, crowd managers, and so forth. Uh, as far as... Uh, what the professor said just a moment ago about the hotel event and the subway, people leaving the subway, all those factors would have been known. It's not as if it was an act of God or something. All of those should have been addressed in what should have been, I hope was, a crowd management plan by public safety officials and others responsible for this event. Uh, Dan Maxwell wanted to turn the question back to you as a retired police officer and assuming that you have been in uh, doing crowd control before. Is there something that police and experts see as when you're on the scene and a crowd is there and you're beginning to sense this crowd is getting too big to manage itself? If you do see that, what do you do? What's the steps that police should take? Well, well they should have. Go ahead, Paul. No, I thought you were. I thought I was answering. Go ahead and answer it. I want to hear what you said. Yeah, Dan, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I, I think the the police should have a contingency plan if crowds start to get too big. You know, if they didn't have a plan in place to to keep them limited in the first place. But I mean, they should be five. Police should be five steps ahead of whatever is happening at the present time, whether it's uh, redirecting the crowd or controlling the size of the crowd. All of that stuff should be worked out ahead of time. And, and uh, uh, Paul, what about you? What, what is the thing as an expert that you see uh, beginning to form before it turns into a bad situation? 
Uh, well, again, all that really starts with the event planning. But once you're on site, density is really the thing. And the mood of the crowd is the thing that you have to that you have to watch out for, but you have to be able to prepare for it, to respond to that situation. So densities always uh, create an energy and a disorder in themselves, crowd surge, crushing of various levels, uh, overcrowding and people who are unhappy. And sometimes that shows up in more boisterous or even violent actions. So, there are two techniques in place limiting uh, crowd density, monitoring, uh, uh, metering crowds, meaning you only let so many in or so many out, uh, shutting off certain areas, direct communicating with the crowd, right. that, you know, and so forth and so on. There are things that could be done. But I want to say another thing that's often behind the scene. Yeah, I don't know if it was relevant here in, in Korea yet, but I've seen it in the United States. Political leaders compromise police and fire efforts by, by not having by not having enough uh, police. By by simply saying, by the the business community or those people who profit from these events, saying we're just trying to make a buck. The police are too heavy-handed. The fire marshal's too tough. We employ so many people. We need somebody. We need you, mayor or council, to get these guys to back off. I've seen it. I've spent ten years in government too, Cincinnati. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're gonna run out of time. But, but thank you for that thought. Very quick answer from you, Dan. If somebody were to find him or herself in a situation like happened in uh, South Korea, is there anything you can do? Uh, Find a safe place to go. I mean, if you can find a place to go, you know, try not to panic. you know, do the best you can to be safe. All right. Thank you very much. Dan Maxwell, a retired police officer, lecturer of criminal justice at the University of New Haven, and also Paul Wertheimer, crowd control expert who runs CrowdSafe. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Having a blue check mark next to your name on Twitter is a sign that you're cool. And that you have prestige and that you're better than most other people. At least that's what I'm told it means. It means you're somebody and the real somebody that you say you are. Would you pay, though, to have that blue check mark? Twitter is now considering charging people about 20 bucks a month. So it's about $240 a year to get their blue check verification. John Nash is a social media and e-commerce expert and business person. John, thanks for being with us. Uh, I've been just going through uh, Twitter for the past uh, hour or so, and uh, so far the comments have been pretty uniformly negative, many expressed in language I can't use on the radio. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. I've been seeing the same thing. So, I mean, is this an idea whose time has come, or is this an idea whose time has come and should go? Um, for the blue checks or for paying for it? Well, both, I suppose, now. <laughs> I have a feeling the the cachet of the blue checks are going to go um, only because you're going to have a flood of people getting involved. Um, now, Elon just bought it, so it makes a lot of sense to monetize your power users. And those power users are people who want that blue check. And he's going to make a lot of money off of them. But how much money? If a lot of people revolt against this and they don't pay and they, they leave the platform, sure, some people will still pay, but... 
that's really a drop of the bucket compared to the $44 billion he just spent. Oh, yeah. I mean, this isn't going to be uh, he's not going to make his money back just with this. Um, and the proportion of people that have that blue check is is very small compared to the, the number of users out there. Um, so I guess it depends on who leaves. Um, right now, it's still the number one platform for uh, news and uh, commentary on current events. So you'd have to have an alternative for that. But to pay, um, but, to, I, but to pay for it, uh, though, John, doesn't it kind of run counter to what the purpose was? Because before it was presumed that there was some checking done, although that's questionable at times, but but some checking that was done to verify, you know, the person that got the check. But if you can get it by by just paying the money and I know they're saying that there'll be a verification process, but I suspect that they're not going to want to turn down the 240 bucks a year. So anyone who wants to pay essentially is going to get their little check mark. Yeah, I mean, I guess it comes down to the process. I know the the short-lived app Parlor had a process where you upload a, a government ID and I think a selfie, and they had some sort of uh, machine learning algorithm that could could check those. Is it going to catch? Is it going to get uh, all of those right? Certainly not. Um, but there will definitely have to be a process. Otherwise, you're going to have all sorts of um, fraud and imposters in there. All right. Let's say Elon Musk does this and they start charging twenty bucks for the blue check, and if it works, if Twitter doesn't wither away and die as a result. Does that mean other social media platforms could try this, like, say, Facebook? Uh, maybe. I mean, it depends on how much uh, a verification is is desired. Um, Facebook, I think, as you said uh, in the intro, has done a great job of making it kind of a, a cool thing. It's a cachet piece. If everybody's got it, it's not going to have that same cachet. So there's there's a fine line to walk here. Well, don't you also, I mean, sort of taking the airline model where, you know, years ago it started off with, you know, you had one classification to show that you were, a, you know, I don't know, a blue star passenger. And then, of course, now you have like 30,000 different classifications. <laughs> By the time they board the plane, it's already left. But it, right. isn't that likely to happen with this, too? I mean, if you start off with $240 a year for a blue check, then isn't it inevitable that sooner or later there will be the deluxe four hundred dollar verification thing which will be i don't know a a red and yeah red and green check i mean it it goes on and on and on isn't that sort of what history teaches us yeah this is going to look like boy scout badges yeah at the end (laughs) (laughs) um definitely possible the the angle that that i've heard brought up is that if you could make it so you know it just verifies you're a real person and then um you could filter out who you want to communicate with just so they're verified real people it could be a way to combat the bots. Um, that would be a, de- a decent angle if it gets to the, you know, Boy Scout badges. Um, it's it's definitely not going to be worth the money. It's going to lose uh, that that prestige that it once had. So it's it's definitely a tough one. Suppose they can't verify that you're a real person, but they can verify you have a real job. Then what do they do? And a real check. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you got real money. Yeah. That's that's a, that's an interesting question. That that probably be one for Elon. I, I don't know how you go about doing that. Um, it, I mean, there are uh, off-the-shelf uh, kind of machine learning and AI algorithms that you could use. Um, they're usually about 95% effective, but even 5% fraud probably is not going to be great. But I did notice, uh, other than the this notion of charging people for the blue check, that I, I think this morning, did he not do away with uh, his board so that he's now the, the sole dictator? I'm, I'm sorry, the sole <laughs> person who's running it? Yeah, dictator king. I'm, I'm yeah, not sure which. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, I saw that as well, that he's basically the only one calling the shots now. 
Is uh, twenty bucks a month too much? I mean, maybe maybe the idea it could be sold, but maybe twenty bucks might be a bridge too far. Depends. Depends on how much people want that blue check. How I mean, much they I, want to pay? I, yeah. Yeah. How much they they're willing to pay or want to pay? Um, I have a feeling that the twenty dollar thing was a trial balloon, and we're seeing the reaction. Um, a lot of the time, you'll you'll see that with um, businesses, they'll float an idea, see what the reaction was like, and then pull back. Um, this could be one of those situations. I'm not sure. So I am curious, John. Do you have a blue check? Oh no, I'm not nearly cool enough. <laughs> but would you pay though twenty dollars to have one now? Hold on. Why yeah. are we talking to you if you don't have a blue check? How do we know it's yeah, you? That's a good question. Yeah, we yeah. can't. We don't even know if it's you. <laughs> yeah. But would you pay twenty dollars? Uh, no, I, I don't care about the prestige that much. Um, but I, I definitely uh, have some friends that, that would be interested in it. But um, myself, no. All right, thank you. Uh, that is a person claiming to be John Nash, <laughs> social media and e-commerce expert and business person. Today, of course, is Halloween, and you might see some adults and some kids dressed up as, I don't know, aliens. It's also the day the Director of National Intelligence has to give Congress its first annual unclassified update on unexplained aerial phenomena. That's the new term, by the way, for UFOs. And the goal is to figure out what is going on. So far, a few media reports quoting officials say most of the UAP cases can be explained by things like airborne clutter, weather balloons, foreign surveillance, issues with a camera. So does this kind of dash the hopes of those looking for proof of extraterrestrials? Alex Filipenko is an astrophysicist and professor of astronomy at UC Berkeley. He's frequently featured on the History Channel series The Universe. Thank you so much for joining us. So that's the question. Uh, before we get to the UFO part of this, about uh, are there intelligent aliens elsewhere in the universe? Most people say, yeah, because the universe is so big, there has to be. But then that's also the problem, isn't it, that the universe is so big? So why would they be here? Could they be here? And are we also dealing with the fact that maybe intelligent civilizations don't really last that long, so we would never meet them? Yes, well, thank you so much for having me on this program the UFO and UAP phenomenon is clearly of great interest to the general public. It is to scientists as well. The universe is vast. There's 100 billion stars or more in our own Milky Way galaxy. It's reasonable to suggest that there may well be intelligent aliens out there. My personal opinion is that they're rare, but probably we're not alone. But the distances are vast, and it's very, very unlikely that we would be of interest to sufficiently intelligent and advanced aliens to be just sort of spying on us. Uh, we're like the little ants on the street, and usually when you're walking on the street, you don't pay much attention. Now, if the ant is in your kitchen, then you pay attention, but we're not in anyone's kitchen. We're not threatening them, so why would they care? What is it, do you think, about the, um, and I know that you're not a, a psychologist, but still, what, what do you think there is about the human psyche that it, it so much seems to crave wanting to to identify all of these objects as coming from another planet with some intelligent being piloting the ship? Why do we so crave that? Yeah, it, it's really an interesting question. Um, I think it's that when... People say that, well, there's some unexplained phenomenon and gosh, maybe there are aliens out there. And so the two are brought together. It's it's a natural uh, just juxtaposition, perhaps, you know, people want to believe this. But in science, the standards of evidence are very high. And 
So just saying they're two unexplained phenomena, they're therefore they're the same thing or they're somehow related, that that's not enough, you know. <laughs> and maybe people want to believe in these aliens visiting us as perhaps a hope for our future if we're doomed on this planet, which someday, doubtlessly we are, the sun's going to run out of fuel and things like that, the asteroid might hit us. If, if If there's some chance that we could also go elsewhere, that would perhaps increase our overall longevity of the species. And so seeing other evidence of aliens having done this perhaps might give people hope. But I'm not really sure. I'm not a psychologist, and it's a great question. And, you know, there's also the other side of that coin, too, the the question of hope. We hope that they're out there and that maybe they can help us. But there's also fear. And there always seems to fear, and it drove so many of the science fiction movies that we've seen of aliens coming down. They're here to invade us, to take away our planet, to slaughter us, to eat us, to do whatever they want to with us. Yeah. Uh, that fear is kind of a projection, isn't it? We're projecting our own fears because we know what we have done as human beings when we have come into contact with other cultures that weren't as advanced, and we just basically kind of wipe them out because that's what we do. So we just kind of project, well, that's what aliens would do to us, right? Right. Yeah, there's definitely some of that going on. On the other hand, you know, nearly every star that we know of has planets orbiting it. In many cases, planets that could well have liquid water and other necessary ingredients for life on them. And so there's plenty of real estate out there for aliens to take over that is probably unoccupied. And so you could take the more hopeful view of, say, Star Trek, where the prime directive was you watch them, but you don't interfere in any way. You don't try to do a hostile takeover, <laughs> nor do you try to save them if you see that they are on their way to self-destruction. So we would be so primitive, again, the ant comparison, to any intelligent alien that is able to traverse these giant interstellar distances so quickly that I doubt that um, we really have that much to fear from them. You know, they, they, would, they would not fear us, and they would probably find other real estate to take over where they wouldn't necessarily have to stomp out the ants. But here, here's what I've always wondered. Uh, yeah. With all of these sightings over the years, uh, you would think at some point, if someone was going to take the trouble to come all the way to Earth circling around, buzzing aircraft, doing all the things that they reportedly do, wouldn't one of them eventually, I don't know, like sit down in Anaheim and say, you know, where do we get day passes to Disneyland or something? Well, exactly. You know, sh show me the evidence. Show me the kryptonite. Show me some sort of a gadget or gizmo that could not have been made by humans uh, here on Earth. And, and that's where the evidence is really lacking. And moreover, for 50 years now, uh, there have been these reports of, of UFOs and stuff. But despite the wonderful new technology we now have, the, the images and the videos really aren't very much better. And this new report, which I have not seen, most of it is classified, but even what I've seen from the unclassified report, you know, they, there are ways to explain this in less extraordinary um, hypotheses. And there's a fellow, Mick West, you can look him up. He's a retired video game programmer, but he looks in great detail into what these things could be, you know, alternative explanations. And he has a bunch of YouTube videos. He has very reasonable. Other I've seen them. I've seen them. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Carl Sagan used to say extraordinary claims require extra 
ordinary evidence. And scientists would like no, nothing better, I think, than to find really good, hard evidence of intelligent extraterrestrial life elsewhere, perhaps even life that is visiting us. But we need really good evidence, and that's what's lacking. All right. Thank you so much. Alex Filipenko, astrophysicist, professor of astronomy at UC Berkeley. Uh, Charles, you know what I think? Yeah. I think that aliens are out there. You're they right. are here. They yeah. are watching us. But the yeah. reason they have not contacted us mm-hmm. is because we are an experiment. We're a test tube. We're under quarantine. They're not going to interfere because they want to see how crazy can a civilization get. Okay, so uh, I'm kind of a dark person. <laughs> yes, we'll uh, we'll be in touch with the hospital, Rob, and <laughs> <laughs> right away I'll be fine. <laughs> Sitting in for Rob tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's in depth for uh, today. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow, and uh, maybe well, we'll... one of us will be. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, I'll, t- I'll I'll take some medication. And I'll be fine. 